Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When a beloved matriarch is found stabbed to death in her home. This homicide was as brutal as brutal gets. This northern Wisconsin town is frozen in their tracks. It's shocking anytime it happens in your own backyard. Police only know one thing about the killer. We were looking for an individual that had an immense amount of hatred. Until a teenage girl makes a startling confession. I was shocked. What would a high school kid have to know about what's going on? And her tragic tale of innocence lost reveals a killer in their midst. How well do you know your neighbors? What lies behind the white picket fences? Deep in the north woods of Wisconsin lies a winter wonderland residents call Tomahawk. A near-perfect place. Daily life plays out much like a movie in this small Midwestern hamlet. It's a very, very friendly community. It's a community where everybody knows each other, and uh, that that makes it very nice to, to live here. The charming backdrop provides an ideal setting for family life. And nothing is more important to longtime resident, 42-year-old Tracy Maurer. She was a very good mom. She was always right there if I needed her, or if I needed to call her to talk to her about anything, it wouldn't matter what time. Tracy's true pride and joy is her three-year-old granddaughter, Harmony. She is her only grandchild, after all. She had pictures all over her walls of my daughter. Even in the kitchen, she had three, four A-Pi-10s. So, yeah, she loved my daughter a lot. And as the Easter holiday approaches in April of 2007, Tracy excitedly awaits the chance to spoil her family some more. She fills granddaughter Harmony's Easter basket to the brim. But Tracy doesn't stop there. She was supposed to come and pick up my daughter um, that Friday morning and make Easter cookies with her. While little Harmony waits for her grandma, a deadly shadow casts across this tiny town on Good Friday. But for Tracy Maurer, there is no hope of resurrection come Easter Sunday. On the bitter cold morning of Friday, April 6th, 
Officer John Duplay tries to shake the chill as he settles into another day at the Tomahawk PD. After 17 years of service on the seven-man force, he knows what to expect from his fellow townsfolk. You can deal with something as minuscule as a barking dog, and you've got calls at the high school, minor disturbances out there or truancies. And it's one of those minor disturbances that sits at the top of his to-do list today. It seems that Tracy Maurer's neighbor over at the Merrill Street Apartments heard a troubling ruckus coming from her place late last night. But an overnight officer sent to the scene found nothing. When he went there, he was unable to, to get a hold of anybody. Uh, he stated he did uh, try to peek in and look into several windows, but again, couldn't see anybody. After checking with the neighbor who said the noises had stopped, the officer leaves. But just to be safe, he requests that someone on the morning shift swing by again to make sure all is well. And since it's only five blocks from the station, Officer Duplay decides that's a pretty good place to start the day. I turned on the, on the mirror, headed east. I noticed as I was pulling up that the door in the west end back here was blowing open. Officer Duplay makes his way to the back door of Tracy's apartment, eager to close the books on this complaint. But instead, he cracks open a can of worms slimier than this little town has seen in decades. Just as I was ready to grab the door, I noticed that there was a large amount of blood and some looked up here, bloody handprints on the door. Not wanting to disrupt a potential crime scene, Officer Duplay goes around to the front door and with his adrenaline pumping, breaks it down. As I looked in further to the living room, uh, I, I seen a body laying there. And then as I got closer, I, I, I knew immediately that this was something way more serious than what everybody would imagine. Frozen in his tracks, a stunned Officer Duplay looks down on a lifeless body he can only assume is Tracy Maurer, lying in a pool of blood. I was hoping that the individual still isn't around someplace hiding. We, you know, I have no clue where the, the, the suspect may have been. Concerned the killer is still there, Officer Duplay draws his weapon and does a quick search of the apartment. When he's sure each and every room is empty, he calls in this quiet little town's first homicide in 25 years. Chief Don Johnson has been heading up Tomahawk's finest for the last seven years. He takes great pride in protecting every nook and cranny of this tiny town. So when the homicide call comes in, this fearless leader is on the scene, sussing it out in mere minutes. Officer Duplay lifted up the blanket far enough for me to see a number of uh, very serious, severe stab wounds. When I initially saw her lying there, it just baffled me how such an attack could occur in, and be so brutal, brutal and bloody. Through the bloody mayhem, Chief Johnson spots an important clue. Tracy is fully dressed, making sexual assault unlikely. And with more stab wounds than he can count, the cause of death is obvious, as is the killer's need to cover up his crime. This is obviously somebody who knew her and knew her well enough that he didn't want to look at her after she was dead. On a roll now, Chief Johnson picks up on another clue. One of the other things that jumped out at me right away was that there was very little disturbed in that apartment. Without any signs of forced entry, police believe Tracy must have let her attacker in. As the crime plays itself out in Chief Johnson's head, 
he finds the last pieces to the puzzle. Somebody had left going out that back door and it had left bloody shoe prints and bloody um, hand prints on the back door as well. Without any ridges in the handprints, police assume they were made with cloth gloves and can't help identify the killer. But not all hope is lost. Are there perhaps any discernible patterns uh, in that blood? Any debris left from the shoe? Was our suspect cut or injured in any manner during this attack? Is there any DNA? Police hope there's more than meets the eye at the crime scene and on the body. But until the autopsy report is in, they will have to look to the living for answers. Investigators have to break the news to Tracy's daughter, but they also hope she can point them to her mom's killer. It felt like when my heart was breaking, it was very hard to deal with. And I went to the police station because they wanted to, you know, ask me if I knew of anybody that she had altercations with. Without hesitation, Michelle points police in one very obvious direction. Steve Roderick is an old flame who still carries the torch for Tracy. He's also known for his erratic behavior. He was a little off sometimes. He was mean sometimes. And then, you know, with the drinking, and you never know what people will do when they're in that state of mind. An unpredictable ex with a bad temper is a surefire suspect. So Chief Johnson takes aim at Steve Roderick. On the hunt for a killer, he races to find Tracy's ex. Could Steve have ended their affair for good? Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression, perfect is the enemy of good? I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. 
From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Just hours after Tracy Maurer is found stabbed to death in her home, the tiny town of Tomahawk, Wisconsin, is frozen with fear. With their doors locked and their curtains drawn, folks in this friendly community worry their town may never be the same. There was a lot of lot of fear, I think. There was a lot of worry, you know, of who would do something like this. As an ink slinger for the Tomahawk leader, Jed Bilo knows his audience. And when he taps into the local chatter, Jed finds out his readers just might provide his first scoop. There was speculation right off. People start talking about things. Uh, names came out. Ex-boyfriends. Chief Johnson has a feeling the gossip might just be right on the money. That's why he already has his eye on Tracy's ex-boyfriend, Steve Roderick. This was so egregious, so violent, so brutal. It, it did appear that this is somebody who had a personal rage against Tracy. It's been two years since Tracy and Steve split. And a quick check of police records tells detectives exactly why. He and Tracy had been in, in a, a confrontation and he had been arrested for that uh, confrontation and charged with a uh, battery or disorderly conduct to her. The case is heating up quickly. And all signs seem to point to Steve Roderick. But in order for Chief Johnson to go after his number one suspect, he's going to need a little backup. After all, this is his first murder case. Good thing Special Agent John Christofferson from the Wisconsin Department of Justice has seen quite a few in his day. My first thought was that something like this in such a rural community is rare. Eager to get started on this game of whodunit, investigators head straight for Tracy's ex, Steve Roderick. It turns out he lives 15 minutes outside of Tomahawk in a wooded area. When detectives show up at his door with the surprising news that Tracy is dead, they don't get the reaction they expected. He was upset, but he didn't appear to be overly distraught or as upset as I would expect someone to be. I had concerns about his involvement right away. But is Tracy's ex up to no good? or merely a man of few emotions. Special Agent Christofferson is determined to find out. Anytime you have a relationship that is now broken, we want to know what type of breakup it was, what type of relationship they had. Steve readily admits that he and Tracy sometimes had trouble while they were dating. But he insists that their friendship over the past few years was as smooth as a nut brown ale down at Mary's Hangout. So much so 
that the two were supposed to get together that Thursday night for a glass of wine and some good conversation. They were going to go out to dinner and had a schedule to, to meet. At some point, she had canceled, saying she had too long of a day, was tired, and just didn't want to go out. Investigators wonder if a broken date was enough to send Steve into a homicidal rage. But when Detective Johnson asks Steve if he did it, he denies any wrongdoing. Steve insists he was home the entire night. His parents lived in the house right next door. And they were his alibi, stating that they had not heard him leave during the night. And with nothing to hold him, police have no choice but to leave Steve in peace. Before they go, he readily provides a DNA sample, as well as a little insider information on Tracy's personal life. Tracy was having problems with an individual she bought a computer from. The individual was not happy with Tracy about payment on the computer. Still a suspect. Detectives take Steve's parting words with a grain of salt. He could be misdirecting or he could be helping. At that point in time, we didn't know. Could be either one. You betcha. But one thing is for sure. Steve's lead is worth looking into. It turns out the man in question was in close contact with Tracy. The individual Tracy had purchased the computer from happened to be a co-worker and, in fact, was her boss, Seth Lewis. And if Steve's telling the truth, Seth Lewis is far from the ideal co-worker. Steve claims Seth was behind threatening text messages aimed at Tracy. If you don't give me my computer, I'm coming back to get it. Don't, don't mess with me. I, I want my computer back then. Give me the cash or the computer. Investigators wonder if Seth had decided to collect on Tracy's debt with her life. So they track down the 25-year-old fast food manager at his home 30 miles away in Rhinelander, the next big town over. He had already heard that there was a problem with Tracy. He showed concern that it was too bad that uh, she was deceased, but did not show an excessive amount of emotion about her death. And when detectives ask Seth about the reported computer dispute, he maintains his innocence. Seth's demeanor was very laid back. He told us that there was no concern about getting paid for the computer, that payments would come whenever they occurred. Once police hear Seth's side of the story, it sounds reasonable. He was expecting $300 for payment for this computer, and I think he had gotten 100 of it. He claims the texts were merely friendly reminders of their deal, a minor debt investigators doubt led to murder. A $200 debt didn't seem like a, a whole lot, didn't seem like this was somebody we needed to pay too much attention to. But when Seth makes a startling confession, investigators must reconsider the possibility. He had gone to her apartment to seek to get that computer back. So he, he placed himself and his girlfriend at her apartment. It was either the day before her murder or two days prior to the murder. Now investigators need to figure out if Seth made a return visit the night of Tracy's murder. Seth swears he didn't. He claims he was out with his girlfriend for the first part of the evening. He had taken her to her home, and her parents could verify what time she was dropped off. Seth goes on to say that he spent the rest of the night with another one of his gal pals. He had then returned and uh, met with another former girlfriend and friend of his, uh, and spent time with her talking throughout the night. His lineup of ladies doesn't make Seth look like the straightest arrow in the bag. 
but this group of girls just might be his saving grace, if they all back up his story. One of the individuals that Seth gave us the name of was a 16-year-old high school girl who corroborated the information that Seth had given us as to his whereabouts. The other girl soon follows suit. And when the search of his trailer comes up empty, it looks like robbing the cradle might be Seth's only offense. There was nothing of real significance on Seth Lewis that jumped out at us. He had no violent criminal past and nothing of real significance in his record. Investigators take his DNA, just to be sure. But police are starting to believe this guy is as good as cheddar cheese on apple pie. Walking away from Seth's interview, there was no red flags regarding Seth being involved in Tracy's homicide. With the book closed on Seth Lewis, detectives head home for some much-needed R&R. But when a 911 call comes into the station, they've got to get right back to work. We had an assault with a knife uh, at a home about a block and a half from where Tracy's homicide had occurred. A second knife attack in just 24 hours shoots up red flags for Chief Johnson. I'm sitting bolt upright in bed wondering, do we have somebody out there attacking persons? With a possible serial slasher making his way through town, Tomahawk's finest have to ask, was Tracy's grisly murder merely his first stop? Tomahawk, Wisconsin is full of small-town spirit. But just a day after the murder of longtime resident Tracy Maurer, morale is at an all-time low. Folks just don't know what to think about the horrific crime on Merrill Avenue. But reporter Jed Bilo is sure of one thing. With a possible serial killer on the loose, no one is taking their safety for granted. This was an all-hands-on-deck for everybody in the police department, at the newspaper, people in the community being more vigilant than they might otherwise be. So when detectives get word about an attack on another woman named Jennifer Torres, their ears perk right up. A 21-year-old male and his live-in girlfriend had gotten into a dispute, and a knife had been brandished during that dispute, and the 21-year-old had been arrested. The top lawman in town, Chief Johnson, is all over the case from the get-go. While Jennifer escaped unharmed, Johnson still has a feeling her knife-wielding boyfriend, Derek Pearl, might have something to do with Tracy Maurer's murder. This was an individual we had dealt with in the past. He had uh, some problems with law enforcement, tended to be a little bit aggressive. Derek has a laundry list of priors that include burglary, battery, disorderly conduct, and trespassing. And he's got more than just these skeletons hiding in his closet. Officers searching the home find something suspicious smeared on a pair of shoes sitting by the door. There was some type of blood transfer or blood spatter that was discovered on the shoes. Could that have been Tracy's blood, which occurred the night before at the time of her death? The shoes are rushed to the lab while detectives sit down with their number one suspect. He fesses up to the violent attack on Jennifer, but that's where his confession ends. 
Derek was very forthright with what had occurred at the apartment, but denied any knowledge whatsoever of being involved in Tracy's homicide, did not know Tracy. But this game of 20 questions isn't over yet. Detectives want to know what Derek was doing the night of Tracy's murder. And not surprisingly, he's got an answer for that too. He had an alibi about being at home with his girlfriend and his brother the previous night. Derek's brother backs up his story, and so does his girlfriend, Jennifer. And since she's moving forward with domestic abuse charges against him, cops are convinced that Jennifer's not covering for her abusive boyfriend. As Derek sheds a layer of guilt, detectives receive a much-anticipated call from the lab. The blood on those shoes matched Derek. It was not from Tracy Maurer, did not match. And with nothing to connect him to Tracy's murder, detectives have to consider that their lead suspect just might be innocent. When he had a real solid alibi, when we couldn't put any other connections direct to Tracy and him, it seemed likely that he was telling the truth. Without any suspects left on the list, investigators hope the autopsy report will give them something to work with. According to the coroner, Tracy was stabbed 80 times, and three of the wounds were downright savage. One of them was a slicing wound across Tracy's throat that was essentially from ear to ear. Another was down the back of her neck nearly severing her spinal cord. And a third wound had been driven through her ear, through her skull. Whoever killed Tracy just wanted her good and dead. As suspected, the coroner confirms that she was not sexually assaulted. With no DNA or any foreign substances found on her body, cops will have a hard time identifying her killer. All the uh, blood on, on her body was her own. There was no blood from any other person that we were able to identify. With no additional suspects in sight, Chief Johnson can only hope that there are other fish in the sea. So while a search continues, he turns to an old Copper State pastime for a chance to reflect on the case. I've been ice fishing since I've been two years old. You go out there and you punch a hole and you... Drop your bait down there and see what happens. And an experienced fisherman such as himself usually pulls up a few beauties. I've got fish that are big enough to mount and put on the wall, and that's always enjoyable. Now ready to reel in his biggest catch yet, Chief Don Johnson returns to the case and vows to catch Tracy's killer. So he puts the word out to the surrounding cop shops to see if anyone bites. And someone in Rhinelander does in no time. One of the officers from the Oneida County Sheriff's Department got a hold of me and said, I've got a confidential informant who just went missing, and this person's a knife guy. A missing informant with a penchant for knives puts this guy on Johnson's suspect list. But the officer can't tell Johnson much else since their arrangement is officially off the books. As a confidential informant, generally those are persons who are involved in criminal activity, and this was a person who was known to carry a knife with him. With a rap sheet a mile long, all investigators know is that the informant's crimes are mostly drug-related. But any good detective knows that addicts are as unpredictable as can be. His actions were certainly uh, disturbing. It seemed like he was running scared for some unknown reason, so 
it was one of those red flags again at us that this is a guy we need to locate and find. Which is just what Chief Johnson and his crew intend to do. They start by talking to a few of the informants known drug associates. And before you can say rat, his friends pass on a hot lead that helps detectives track him down. We're getting tips that he had grabbed a bus, headed to Milwaukee. From there, was going to try to get out of state. Certainly didn't seem to be an action that would be indicative of somebody who just wanted to leave town. On the hunt for a killer, detectives put the informant in their crosshairs. But will they hit their target once and for all, or miss the mark once again? Three days after Tracy Mauer's murder, folks in Tomahawk mourn the loss of one of their own. But through their tears, residents keep a constant vigil for the killer. Tracy's daughter, Michelle Hooped, has been on high alert for days. It kind of got nerve-wracking. I would sit there by my window and kind of have it open just a crack just to make sure there was nobody outside. And it was very scary. Ready to put an end to this nightmare, Chief Don Johnson has his eye on a possible suspect, a confidential informant known to be a knife-loving druggie who went missing shortly after Tracy turned up dead. Uh, this was an informant actively working uh, on uh, other investigations, and uh, this informant had skipped town, gone. Suspicious of his disappearing act, Police are working off a tip that this bad guy jumped a bus from Rhinelander to Milwaukee. And Chief Johnson's not taking any chances when it comes to bringing in a potentially dangerous junkie. Officers from the Milwaukee uh, Police Department were down there waiting to take him into custody. He's not surprised to see police waiting for him. But the informant is blown away by their accusations of murder. We were able to confirm that he had been with several different people uh, on that night and that he couldn't possibly have done it. With no evidence to pin on the guy, detectives drop him from their suspect list. It was frustrating that all these avenues that we were following ended up with dead ends. But Special Agent John Christofferson refuses to give up. He lives and breathes every case until it's closed. Even driving down the road and the surroundings may trigger something about an investigation that you're working. It's a good thing he's got a reprieve come every Wednesday when Christofferson steps onto the ice for his weekly hockey game. That allows me to escape for a period of time, and I don't have anything else to worry about that day except staying upright on my skates. But the second he unlaces those skates, Christofferson is all business again. We still wanted to maintain a positive attitude that something was going to happen, and something eventually did happen. Christofferson and Chief Johnson get a solid lead from a retired police officer. Even though he's no longer on the payroll, this guy's been hemming and hawing over the case ever since word spread around town. And this rusty gun's got a sinking suspicion about a young man named Trent Aker with a troubling past. He advised me that in Trent's younger days, uh, Trent had a fascination with the occult. Trent's well-known around these parts for his gothic appearance. And another one of his notorious claims to fame is Trent's spooky living quarters. It's an old uh, 
funeral home uh, converted to now just a, a very large uh, home. And the morbid dwelling just happens to be very close to Tracy's house. Being a next-door neighbor, Tracy more than likely knew that individual and may have felt comfortable allowing them into her residence. Well, he, he doesn't hold a regular job, not a person real active in the community, kind of kept to himself. Trent is shaping up to be a likely suspect, but it's what detectives learn next that shoots him to the top of their list. Trent was suspected of uh, killing animals, specifically cats, and, and hanging those cats in trees in a local park. Police never could tie Trent to the feline killings, but they've always wondered about the loner with a questionable past. Now it's time to find out if he's a killer once and for all. He's somebody we certainly needed to talk to an interview and, and follow up on. And when detectives pay Trent a visit at home, they realize they've seen him before, lurking around Tracy's crime scene. The day that we were there doing the, the investigation, um, he was out at various points watching our activity and uh, interacting with officers that were there. But Trent didn't stand out to police on the day of Tracy's murder. Didn't dress goth-like. His dress now did not match with the report uh, that I was told about what he did in his younger days. But just because he doesn't look the part anymore doesn't mean Trent didn't play the role of Tracy's killer. So cops quit beating around the bush and come right out and ask him. He indicated he was at home uh, with his roommates who lived in that same uh, house. Trent's roommates back up his story without hesitation. And detectives are inclined to listen. We did not believe they had a, an overwhelming reason to lie and cover for him. They seemed straightforward. While Trent's an odd bird, police doubt he was behind Tracy's murder. Going back to the, the scene, the level of violence and, and uh, rage exhibited he did not come across as a person that could do that. But just when all hope is lost, detectives get the break they've been waiting for, and it cracks this case open wider than a bolt of lightning in the midnight sky. We got a phone call from a local high school stating that there were some high school girls that wanted to provide information on Tracy Mauer's homicide. At first, detectives think it's another false lead, but it turns out to be the break they've been waiting for. I couldn't have been more wrong. This uh, student met with us and, and blew me out of the water. A shocking confession brings Tracy's case full circle, right back to an old suspect they ruled out long ago. Weeks after the murder of Tracy Maurer, detectives are working a killer lead. But no one, especially Chief Johnson, can believe it's coming from a local teenager. I was shocked. I didn't expect to have a 15, 16-year-old high school student breaking this case wide open for us. The helpful teen claims she knows who killed Tracy and can prove it. She swears that her friend and classmate, Helene Parsons, told her who did it and is hiding the killer's bloody clothes at her house. She proceeded to describe how Helene told her that these clothes were in a garbage bag, 
They were between the mattresses of her bed. Detectives can't believe their ears, especially since Helene Parsons is no stranger to this investigation. Helene was the 16-year-old girlfriend of Seth Lewis. She was part of his alibi. Seth Lewis, Tracy's boss, was a suspect in her murder early on, but was ruled out based on Helene's story and a weak motive. But now investigators wonder, could Seth have killed Tracy over a meager debt after all? That was an eye-opening moment, and it was the icebreaker that we needed. With their eye on the prize, detectives move quickly to Helene's house to find out if she really is hiding damning evidence. Helene's dad is the only one home, but Mr. Parsons invites them inside without hesitation. He's sure his little girl has nothing to hide, but he couldn't be more wrong. I lift the mattress up, and there right in front of my eyes is a black plastic garbage bag tied shut. Therein lies the smoking gun. Right on top of the pile of bloody clothes, they find a pair of cloth gloves with latex liners, accessories that help explain the bloody prints at the crime scene. The latex gloves protect from leaving any physical evidence, and the cloth patterns of that exterior glove clearly matched up. Determined to find out what really went down at Tracy's that night, detectives send the clothing off to the lab, then make a beeline for their prime suspect. When investigators show up at Seth's house, he has no clue that police are on to him. Seth Lewis came to the door, invited us inside. He did not seem surprised. It turns out Seth is not alone. His accomplice Helene is also on hand to greet detectives. Police want to talk to Helene one-on-one, so they convince her to come down to the station, claiming they need an official statement about Seth's alibi. She seemed pretty calm as well. Uh, didn't seem concerned about the fact that we had additional questions. Even though Seth is their number one suspect, police don't want him to know that until they can nail him for sure. He remains a free man for now, but they station some officers nearby just in case Seth makes a break for it. But he doesn't seem worried by law enforcement's renewed interest in his girlfriend. And He was very calm and cool, not rattled in the least. He didn't blink an eye didn't stumble, stutter, break a sweat. And so far, Helene is also putting up a good front. She insists the items found under her mattress don't belong to Seth at all, but someone else. She started out with, it was given to us by a a guy who told us to get rid of it for him and we don't know who it is and uh, it made no sense. Helene refuses to give up Seth, but she does offer another person of interest. She says 17-year-old Catherine St. John was also with them on the night of Tracy's murder. And this name rings a bell for detectives. Turns out she was also part of Seth's original alibi. She confirmed that she was friends with both Helene and Seth and that she and Seth hung out for the night and basically stuck to that story originally. Now police need to get Catherine down to the station stat. But first, they must release Helene to her parents, since the minor can't be held without a confession. But with Catherine in the hot seat now, investigators are sure to get what they need. She acknowledged they had gone to what was later determined to be Tracy Maurer's apartment and that Seth had gone inside alone. 
Catherine claims Seth went to collect money Tracy owed him for the computer. But police are pretty sure that's not all that went down that night. And what she tells them next confirms their theory. Catherine told us Seth came out of Tracy's residence, he was covered in blood, and got into Catherine's car. Catherine swears she was stunned and immediately questioned Seth. She tells detectives that Seth told her he walked into a gruesome scene. Another man stabbing Tracy to death. But police know better than to believe this bogus story. If you're witnessing a homicide, you're going to be running to a neighbor's house and calling for assistance. A story like that is hard to believe. And detectives don't. Not for one minute. Seth is arrested on April 17th, 2007, just 11 days after Tracy turned up dead. The arrest of Seth went without incident. He was very passive. He did not display any type of emotion. Seth lawyers up right away and refuses to speak to detectives. That is until the results come back on the bloody clothes. The DNA clearly matched with Seth Lewis. He couldn't avoid that. And that's not all. While handling Seth's clothing, lab technicians find the murder weapon neatly tucked away in the shirt pocket. Unbeknownst to us, this whole time, that knife was in that bag of clothes. Backed into a corner, Seth confesses to murdering Tracy Maurer. It was kind of a burden lifted off of our shoulders that not only did we know we had the correct individual but now we're gonna learn the true story. Seth finally admits his true motive. It turns out he didn't care about the $200 Tracy owed him for the computer. Tracy held something much more precious to him. She knew his secret. Seth was a thief. Seth was spearheading a quasi ring of burglaries and thefts in stealing computers and other items from residences and businesses. And when Tracy found out the computer he sold her was stolen, she planned on telling police. But she made the mistake of letting Seth know first. That's a threat to him. That's gonna put him away in prison. And he wanted to eliminate that threat. On October 16th, 2008, Seth Lewis pleads guilty to the felony charges of first-degree homicide. And in exchange for a full confession, Seth strikes a deal that makes him eligible for parole when he's 70 years old. Catherine St. John, Seth's driver, is found guilty of felony murder, armed robbery, and is sentenced to five years behind bars. Even young Helene, who hid the clothes, is found guilty of the crime of first-degree recklessly endangering safety and is sentenced to 90 days jail time. We have all of the individuals that were involved in this case incarcerated. Additionally, the family members of Tracy Maurer do not have to endure a lengthy trial. But it still doesn't take away the pain for Tracy's daughter, Michelle Hooped, who misses her mother with every passing day. It never gets any better. It's still like a gaping wound that you'll never be able to heal. But knowing the truth does help. Based on his confession, Police know exactly how Seth Lewis planned and executed the attack on Tracy Maurer. He spent some time laying this out. He uh, acquired the knife in advance. He, he purchased the clothes, the gloves. 
And once he had everything all lined up, Seth put his plan into action. He convinces Catherine to drive him over to Tracy's residence. Seth tells Catherine to wait in the car while he collects on a debt. But Seth's true intentions are much more sinister. He went in there clearly for the purpose of killing her. But Tracy is none the wiser and invites Seth inside. They came in, sat down, were talking, and at some point, the talking didn't go the way he wanted. And when Tracy threatens to expose Seth for his burglary ring, he quiets her for good. He's enraged, and he's already gloved up. He's got the knife in his hand, and he explodes. The attack happens so quickly that Tracy never gets the chance to defend herself. He stabs her and stabs her and stabs her to the point where he can't stop. Once he finishes the job, Seth flees the scene with Catherine, and they pass off his bloody clothes to Helene. The flaw in his plan was that he had young girls that were assistants that, when confronted, gave up information. Even though the case is solved, local journalist Jed Bilo can see the brutal murder of Tracy Mauer still haunts this quaint community. Even though you live in a, a nice, quiet, uh, friendly, small town, at the same time, you know, big, terrible things kind of happen, and they do. But while residents might be a little more cautious, they do their best to move forward and not spend too much time lingering on the past. I think the community had a sense that, okay, we can start getting back to what defines us, the things that, you know, make Tomahawk such a great place to home. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.